Support for Alleist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for Alleist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at alleist.com slash events. Studios. When I was about nine years old, my family went on summer vacation. It was 1965 or 6. In those days, I could spend all day reading. To be honest, I can still spend whole days reading. But this was special. This was the summer I discovered Robert A. Heinlein. Heinlein was a science fiction writer, one of the greats and one of the first to aim for scientific accuracy in his work. Heinlein was also one of the first to write three-dimensional female characters. A lot of early science fiction, like early aerospace, was extremely male-oriented and sexist. In Heinlein's stories, however, women were smart and educated. They were sexy. One story, Let There Be Light, had a character named M.L. Martin. She had enough academic degrees, Heinlein wrote, for six men, and the ML in her name stood for Mary Lou. Well, by the end of that summer, when I went back to school, I ditched Mary Grace, the name my parents had given me, and became MG, and I've been MG ever since. In our last episode, we talked a lot about Frank Molina and Jack Parsons, two key members of the Suicide Squad, and in certain ways, polar opposites, despite their common interest in rocketry. But what also bound them together was a love for science fiction. From a young age, Parsons and his buddy Ed Foreman were deeply interested in speculative fiction. As adults, they attended sci-fi literary societies in Los Angeles. Born of Czech immigrants, Molina split his childhood between a small Texas town called Brenham and the Moravia region of Czechoslovakia. He wasn't as obsessed as Parsons was with science fiction, but both Molina and Parsons had a common text that sparked their imaginations when they were kids. Jules Verne's 1865 fantasy, From the Earth to the Moon. It's about a group of people trying to reach the moon via an enormous space gun. I mean, probably not the safest means of transportation. But the story excited a lot of readers. Well, certainly Molina expresses an interest in space from quite an early age. He reads Jules Verne, of course, in Czech. That's Fraser MacDonald. He's a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh and the author of Escape from Earth, a secret history of the space rocket. I definitely think he combines an interest in all sorts of things, in science, in art, in music, in literature, and in particular in, in philosophy, in the realm of ideas. And, and that, that kind of background, I think, really informs the purpose of space exploration and how it might improve the ordinary, you know, everyday lives of ordinary people. 
for me, science fiction, at its best, opens the mind to what's possible in ways that other stories just can't. Remember, at the time, 1920s, early 30s, there's no such thing as quote-unquote rocket science. Melina and Parsons and the rest of the Suicide Squad are creating a discipline where none exists. But why that field should exist turns out to be a question that different parties have different answers to, especially when one of them is the U.S. military. I'm M.G. Lord. This is L.A. Made. Blood, sweat, and rockets. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. In the last episode, we talked about how the Suicide Squad got its start. They earned the support of Theodore von Karman, who at the time is director of the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at Caltech, a.k.a. Galsit. And they have their mostly successful Halloween test, where, yes, they accidentally set things on fire, but they collect valuable data in the process. But rocket science is still uncharted territory. They need someone to work out the theoretical problems of launching an object into space. Enter Chen Shushen, a brilliant mathematician from China who studied engineering at MIT on a scholarship. The way that Fung Kamen told a story of how he first met Chen was that just one day Chen just turned up in his office at Caltech inquiring about uh, the possibility of future graduate studies. That's Zhou Wang, professor of history at California State Polytechnic University at Pomona. And uh, so Feng Kamen asked him some technical questions, and Chen answered those questions with unusual precision, I think was the, the description by Feng Kamen, so, which impressed the Feng Kamen a great deal. And von Kamen right away offered him a mission to the graduate program at Caltech in aeronautical studies. And so Chen immediately uh, accepted that offer. So he co-authored several path-breaking papers with Theodore uh, von Kamen. Now Chen adores von Kamen, his brilliant mind, his European style. At the time, von Karman and his sister are known in Pasadena for their lavish dinner parties. Guests include world-class scientists, side-by-side side with Hollywood stars like Bela Lugosi. 
And what Chen admires is that both he and some of the other PhD students, like Frank Molina, find knowledge and inspiration in many things outside engineering. It's a combination Chen finds enticing. It's also one that will, in part, be his utter ruin. You'll hear what I mean in later episodes. The point is, in short order, Chen joins Molina and Parsons and Foreman in their rocketry quest. One trouble is, they have no money and research isn't cheap. So in 1937, Molina gives a talk on their findings at Caltech's weekly seminar for engineers and science students. It captures the attention of Weld Arnold, an assistant from Caltech's astrophysical laboratory, who eventually gives them $1,000 in exchange for becoming their photographer. It's a windfall. It means they're able to create the Weld Arnold Rocket Research Fund and get officially recognized by Galsit. The group becomes, well, an actual group and proceeds to nearly kill themselves and lots of other people on campus. To describe these mishaps, I am happy to bring you the voice of Frank Molina himself. We dug deep into the Caltech archives and found this oral history. On the campus, of course, uh, we had some misfires and whatnot. We uh, tried to make an experiment on a little motor in the Guggenheim building. And uh, so we suspended a 50-foot pendulum from the top floor to the basement. And on the bob, we had a little motor with some uh, nitrogen tetroxide and alcohol, and it misfired. And so we sent a tremendous cloud of this corrosive uh, nitrogen tetroxide all through the building. We were thrown out of the building the next day, of course. Uh, then we built what we call the gas apparatus on the outside of Guggenheim. That blew up, and it's quite possibly I might have been done in on that explosion. But uh, Carmen had called his secretary and asked if I would bring him a typewriter at home. So I, I hopped in my Model A Ford or whatever I had at that time, put a typewriter in and drove it to his house. Then I came back. When I came back, I saw many people around. And as I came closer and closer to the end of the building, I began to see bits of, uh, pieces of the apparatus on the ground. So I realized something terrible had happened. Um, but fortunately, neither Parsons or Foreman were, uh, were really hurt. They were shaken up a bit. But where I had been sitting before I left, a piece of a pressure gauge had blown right across, I think where my head was, it buried itself in a piece of wood. So if I'd have been there, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't be here. Uh, well, it, it was sometime around there that we got, uh, began to be known on the campus as a suicide squad. The name was given to them by other Caltech students who probably were scared for their own lives as well. And that's where, you know, basically von Karman, you know, <laughs> decided that maybe enough is enough. That's Maury Garib, the chair of the aerospace department at Caltech. And actually, it, it, this is, again, one of the amazing characteristics of the von Karman himself, that instead of, uh, you know, kicking them uh, out of the department, it's actually offered them, look, you know, we actually obtained a new land uh, a little bit far away from here that you can do all your tests, make all your mess, and uh, nobody they're going to uh, even see it. And that's uh, going to be the, lo new, the location of the JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab, that actually grew around Flint, Flint Ridge like any other area. 
The Weld Arnold Fund also freed Parsons and Molina from working on another last-ditch fundraising attempt. They had written a sketch for a screenplay, hoping for a big Hollywood payday. I actually found the screenplay during research for my book. It was in Molina's study. He kept it in a folder marked MGM, the movie studio. Here's the first sentence. This story is to be built on the present stage of rocketry as the foundation with a superstructure of the dynamic social problems now existing. It's not exactly gripping stuff. Characters are based on Chen, Parsons, and Foreman. The plot's about an airplane manufacturer who wants to sell their rocket secrets to the Nazis. Like most projects in Hollywood, nothing happens. MGM isn't interested. And soon the Weld Arnold Fund dries up entirely. The squad can no longer pay for its experiments. So Molina takes a job with the U.S. Agriculture Department. Parsons and Foreman go back to their old jobs at an explosives factory. Shen goes back to his Ph.D., Almost as soon as they'd formed the Suicide Squad, they go their separate ways. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Well, the United States was really uh, behind the curve of the European powers at the beginning of World War II in Europe in 1939 because of the traditional American attitude to the military, which was we don't mobilize unless there's a war and not beforehand and there's no standing army. The United States was really a second-rate power at the beginning of World War II. Here's something not a lot of people know. At the outset of World War II, the United States military was seriously behind the times. They had, you know, essentially had to have fake tanks and uh, a lot of the cavalry was still using horses. This is Michael Newfeld, senior curator at the Department of Space History, National Air and Space Museum, Smithsonian Institution. It was part of this general problem that the United States had wanted to stay out of the war, was determinately neutral, and had not mobilized significantly at all until just before the eve of World War II. When it comes to rocketry, it's the Germans who are ahead and the Allies far behind. 
It's only in Nazi Germany where they spent a huge sum of money in the German army on liquid repellent rocketry that they made a breakthrough at the end of the 1930s, the beginning of the 1940s. It led to the V-2 missile. Let's pause for a second. If only because the V-2 and its predecessor, the V-1, really are signature pieces of technology, both in terms of the horrible destruction the V-1 caused, but also for their role in aerospace history. So the V-2 was a revolutionary new weapon because it was the world's first ballistic missile. It could launch a one-ton high-explosive warhead about 200 miles in five minutes. And so that seemed like a huge advance that could change the course of the war. But creating our own V-2 wasn't the American military's first idea for rockets. What interested them were JADOs, jet-assisted takeoffs. Here's Neufeld. In the early part of the war, the U.S. Army Air Forces and the Navy, to a certain extent, were interested in so-called rocket-assisted takeoff, or what they call at that time jet-assisted takeoff. Jet-assisted takeoff was this idea that you strap rockets onto the wings of uh, uh, propeller engine heavy bombers or seaplanes to get them off the runway heavily loaded. Let's bring it back to the Suicide Squad. With von Karman looking over their shoulders, they're testing rocket motors at Caltech, also up in the wilderness above Pasadena, to keep from setting Caltech on fire. Funds run dry, and the guys go their separate ways. Then, some months later, Molina saves the squad again by doing what he apparently does best, giving a talk. Here's Molina. So I was sort of holding the fort here and getting rather discouraged in 1938 when the National Academy of Sciences had set up a committee for the Army Air Corps. And one of the problems that they were interested in was the use of rocket propulsion for the auxiliary propulsion of aircraft. And I gave a talk here at the Athenaeum in uh, autumn of 1938, and I called it the facts and fancies of rockets. His talk impresses one of the higher-ups at Caltech, who asked Molina to share his findings with the U.S. military. So at the, by the end of the year, I went to Washington and gave this report. And then we received the first government funds from the, through the National Academy. And then we were off. The band is back together. Bear in mind, a thousand bucks is big money at the time. Two years earlier, Molina almost gave up rocketry because he and Parsons lacked 120 bucks to buy a pair of instruments. In return for the investment, the Army Air Corps wants to see jet-assisted takeoff, or JADO, become a reality. The JADO is meant to solve the huge problem of getting a very large, very heavy aircraft off the ground when you don't have miles of runway to work with. It mostly wound up being used in the Pacific theater because you had to build those runways. Eric Conway, resident historian at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And so they needed the jet-assisted takeoffs to get off these, these primitive short runways that, that once upon a time no one would have, would have thought of building and hit runway on. Basically, 
This war was going to be fought by hopping giant bombers from island to island, from short, hastily built runway to short, hastily built runway. The squad gives the army some early proofs of concept, and an additional $10,000 appears. They keep at it. Explosions in the Arroyo Seco become frequent occurrences. Meanwhile, the war in Europe was never far from their minds, especially Molina's. In a later interview, he recalled, quote, Carmen, of course, with a Jewish background, was extremely sensitive to the Nazi developments in Germany. And since I had been spending so much time with him, no doubt I had an input from that direction. Soon, von Karman and Molina figure out a way for a rocket engine to burn solid propellant for an extended duration. Solid fuel is desired by the Army because it was easier to store. Von Karman and Molina want the propellant to burn like a cigarette from one end to the other, not all at once, like a firework. Within a year, Parsons implements their designs using compressed black powder to create a fuel called Galset 27. Cut to August 1941, test time. The squad gathers at an airfield near Riverside, California. A former student of von Karman, Homer Boucher, a lieutenant in the Army Air Corps, climbs into a monoplane called an air coupe. A JATO assembly is installed under each wing. If they work, the plane will leap off the ground. If they don't, they may explode and tear the plane apart. Something similar happened about a week earlier. Boucher had watched a technical rehearsal without a pilot. Parsons pressed the firing button. Explosions went off, nozzles whirling in all directions. Von Karman said it couldn't have been any worse. And now, in Riverside, they've got a living, breathing pilot. A life is literally on the line. Boucher taxis down the runway. The plane accelerates. He hits the ignition switch. There's a huge plume of smoke. A moment later, the plane jumps into the sky like it's been launched with a catapult. It's the first jet-assisted takeoff in the United States. The first takeoff aided by rocket power. A success without incident. So that's August. Fast forward to December. Japan bombs Pearl Harbor. The United States joins the war. The Army soon tells the suicide squad it wants to use rockets to get a 14,000-pound Douglas bomber off the ground. And they need a more reliable fuel. The initial JATOs developed by the JPL guys were solid fuel. And that was what was done with the Urkoop. Pretty quickly thereafter, Melina had hired a guy who used to be his roommate by the name of Martin Summerfield. And Martin Summerfield developed a liquid-fueled JATO. And that liquid-fueled JATO kind of became the, the basic one for the larger aircraft during the war. It was literally a couple of fixed pods on the aircraft and some fuel tanks inside. Um, those propellants are known as hypergolic now. Um, they're chemicals that react instantaneously on contact with each other, so you don't need an ignition system. Um, which further simplified it, good for the war. This could give the rockets extraordinary thrust. A test date is set for April. A big bomber, a Douglas A-20A bomber, rolls down a runway in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It's fitted with a pair of liquid-fuel rockets, each able 
to put out a thousand pounds of thrust over 25 seconds. The rockets ignite. The bomber shoots forward, flying up into the air. They've shortened the plane's takeoff time and distance by a third. Around that time, Molina writes in a letter to his parents, quote, we now have something that really works. We will be able to give the fascists hell. Basically, jet-assisted takeoff is the idea that gives the Suicide Squad its first big wins and even bigger rewards. It's the beginning of practical rocketry in the United States. Now, Molina and Parsons and the rest need to figure out how to manufacture what they've devised and manufacture a lot of them because the army puts in an order for 60 more and the fascists are hatching jados of their own. March 1942, the group forms Aerojet Engineering Corporation. Von Karman becomes president. Molina is treasurer. Parsons, Foreman, and Martin Summerfield, vice presidents. They are still affiliated, the Suicide Squad is still affiliated with a university. And so there was a debate about, does this really belong at a university or is this like a military project or uh, should it be a private uh, enterprise? This is Justin Chapman, a journalist based in Pasadena, who has spent a lot of time trying to demystify the Suicide Squad. And so they created a private company called Aerojet. And they started mass producing these JDOs and, and sold them to the military primarily. So Aerojet went the private route. Galsit with Caltech went the JPL route and established JPL in 1944. It's run by Caltech, run by the university, but funded by the military. Jack Parsons is likely elated with all the cash on hand. He gets to attempt to blast rockets toward the moon, just like in the science fiction he grew up reading. For Molina, though, it's different. They really wanted to develop rockets as missiles and weapons, and Frank Molina had a real problem with that. He wanted it to be a, a civilian-led international scientific cooperation reaching space for the betterment of humankind, not to destroy other people and, and kill people. To my mind, this is a puzzling contradiction in Frank Molina. On the one hand, you have a man who wants to, quote, give the fascists hell. And on the other hand, you have an idealist who sees rocketry as humanity's saving grace. This contradiction enticed me to look closer at Frank Molina, a man seemingly overlooked by history. How would the idealist react when one of these missiles, an entity he helped bring into the world, was equipped with a nuclear warhead? That's next time on Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of Alea Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. 
Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Alea Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at alaus.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Alaus Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. L.A. Made. Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.